I did not have sexual relations with that woman. Yes or no, did you ever take banned substances to enhance your cycling performance? Yes. I had no prior knowledge of the planned assault on Nancy Kerrigan. I am deeply sorry for my irresponsible and selfish behavior I engaged in. Hey, welcome everybody into Oops the Podcast. This is Francis, as always, joined by my dear friend and co-host, Julio Gallarotti. Yo, yo, yo. How are you, pal? What's going on? We have a splendid guest today. Uh, he has written for the Academy Awards. He has written for Saturday Night Live. He's done uh, Late Night with Seth Meyers. Nimesh Patel, thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. How are you? I'm good. I'm winded, but I'm good. I made it here. You know, it's funny. We appreciate I, it, man. No, no. <laughs> I, I gave that intro, and I, I spoke so quickly, and then Nimesh has this ability to make me realize how fast I'm speaking. Oh, really? Because I talk slow. <laughs> you are the most relaxed speaker uh-huh. and deliverer of words that I have ever met in my life. Really? Yeah. I got to do drugs in front of you more often. <laughs> <laughs> Last time I saw Julio, we were at Ricky's wedding and I yeah. was on shrooms, I think. Like I took, <laughs> I'd taken like a half a, a, a dose from a friend and I was off the rails. I was, I was, I danced the whole night. Like I sweat through my suit, but I was talking to Julio for like it had to be like twenty while. minutes, yeah. yeah. But like just like man, he, <laughs> he was going. He he ordained the wedding, so yes. he had this card that said, "I will never forget." I don't remember his name in the, in the on the card, but the tagline for his ministry or whatever mm-hmm. was. Uh, uh, you do the smooching, I do the paperwork, and for some reason that that made me laugh so hard. <laughs> it didn't, didn't rhyme. <laughs> it's the most confident fucking thing, I'd ever dude. Seen. I love how much you appreciated that. It's so good because everyone was trying to get me to change it, and I'm like, guys, this isn't supposed to be a good business card. <laughs> it was though. <laughs> there you go. Right? You know, it's like uh, you ever see those like shitty commercials that like um. Uh, they'll do for like the Detroiters do like those goofy commercials. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was like that. It was so perfect. Like mm-hmm. this is it. Just said who he was. Like this is amazing. Yeah, <laughs> it sticks with you because of how bad it is. Dude, I brought down but, hundreds of them. But it was so good. <laughs> you know, it was like so bad. It was good. It was fucking. I, I was really <laughs> hoping you were gonna rhyme with something with smooching. I, I needed that for the. I same. do the paperwork. Dude, everyone. Yeah, everyone was like, everyone said that exact thing. Like, you guys should rhyme it. But like I was worried that it wasn't going to seem like a joke, yeah. so I tried to make it seem like one as much as possible. And I think <laughs> even some of like the older people at the wedding were like, "This is very nice." <laughs> like, yeah. Trying not to hurt your feelings. Yeah. <laughs> That's great. That was a good. Um, you have a, a great story. Uh, I was just reading your Wikipedia page. Oh shit! Um, and and tell me if any of this is not correct. Okay. But uh, you were discovered by Chris Rock, yes. in at a show in Brooklyn. I the word discovered is a bit strong only because what came of it was I got to write for him for the Oscars and we've stayed like he'll call me from time to time about like hey I'm doing this do you want to be involved or whatever but at that point I've been doing comedy for five years yeah I think right it was it was 2015 it was like a summer of 2015 that that happened Mm. and all credit to Chris I, I I still carry that chip on my shoulder like Chris Rock told me I was funny who the fuck can say anything else to me you know like but uh, in a way you had you it's not as if you hadn't been discovered yet no i mean that was the it went from that was, that was like the first thing 
Yeah, I mean, that was the summer of my third rejection from JFL New Faces, yeah. and I was in a funk, and I was, and that was that matchless that uh, uh, the stars sort of aligned, and mm-hmm. I, that was one of those nights when I look back at it, I think now I've gotten pretty attuned to seeing when the stars are aligning. And when I think back at that night, the stars had aligned for that night. Like I was in a low. I was like, fuck, I just, again, I didn't get JFL. And at that point I thought that mattered. And, uh, I was like at, at matchless and my job that I was working in, in finance was a, my CEO had just been let go. And it was like a six person office. So it didn't bode well for what was going to happen with the office and my job. And Mm. this was a job I'd been at for probably, I think I want to say two years. And it was a job where they knew I was doing comedy. And so I had work-life balance, but I was also doing interesting stuff. I was flying to Africa to look at investment opportunities, which was very cool to me. Um, And I wasn't making buku money or anything, but it was, it was a cool job. And that was about to end. And it ended like six months later, but I was in such a weird spot. And then, uh, Chris was coming to see someone, um, but Chris was late and normally matchless. Um, you never, did you ever go to matchless? You never went to matchless, but matchless notoriously one of the hardest rooms in New York. And I would, it was my show, mine, Che and Denny's and, but I would bomb there constantly and Chris was late. So, uh, Langston who was, he was there to see, couldn't go up and no other comic was there. And so I went up and Kevin McCaffrey just went up before me and leveled the room, like destroyed. And that never happens. And uh, I went up after him. I was like, and as I'm about to go up, Chris is right here. I'm like, now I have to go up. Chris is here. I have to go up and Mm -hmm. crush. Went up, did well. I heard Chris laugh and that was it for me. I was blacked out, did like 10 minutes and then left. And immediately he was just like, oh, shit. And then Chris came out after he watched Langston. He was like, hey, man, you're really funny. I was like, you're fucking Chris Rock, bro. <laughs> <laughs> and that, I mean, I, I want to say I was discovered then, but it felt like yeah. I'm the shit now, you know? And then yeah. when, when I didn't get JFL or whatever, it was like, whatever, dude, doesn't fucking matter. Chris Rock just told me I was funny. What does anyone know? Yeah. You know? That's very cool. Yeah, what was, came of that for Langston? Well, how did that happen? Uh, so Chris, I mean, Langston was working with a production company that they wanted to get Chris attached to something Got to, it. to Got have, it. um, uh, to help like have, if Chris EP something, it's, it's golden. Right. Yeah. Right, right, right. And so they, Chris wanted to see who he was going to be working with. Right. And I'm not sure what happened with that pilot, but Langston also ended up writing for the Oscars that right. night. Oh, and wow. So well, it was, fucking right. And he, and he has also. That was a moment for his career, I feel, because I remember sure. he was around and he was like doing it, hanging out, trying to find yeah. his way, and he found his fucking way. He's yeah, I mean, Langston has always been destined for greatness, and he's it's good to see him definitely. doing awesome things. But I, I'm not sure if that was his first thing, but it was definitely for all of us. I remember there was a Comedy Central New York Comedy Festival rap party or whatever, and that was in November, and that was when me, Langston... Michelle Kerman. Yeah, Langston Kerman and Michelle Wolf. We'd all maybe that morning or that week received an email from Chris's head writer for the Oscars saying, Hey, Chris wants you to write for the Oscars. Wow. If you're getting this email, you are writing for the Oscars. And I saw Michelle's name in the email. I saw Langston. I was like, oh, We yeah. all saw each other that night at the party. 
And I just remember the three of us being like, ah, it was yeah. so yeah. crazy. That's awesome. Yeah, it was, Sick, it was a fun night. And then you guys all got nominated for an Emmy. Emmy for yeah, yeah, yeah. Well. We got a, I think we got a WGA nomination. I'm not sure if we got Emmy nominated, but I mean, regardless, it was well, just, your Wikipedia page would say otherwise. Well, my my Wikipedia, <laughs> the Emmy came from snl the emmy nomination oh, was from snl me. Oh. yeah yeah sorry stupid of me. Uh, dude. Uh -huh. so you're like theoretically you should be able to get writing jobs for the rest of your life that's what i thought would happen <laughs> post the oscars right like after the, so the oscars was january 2016 that was right the oscars i was supposed to fly out to la like the first week of Fe like february 1st uh to help chris start uh running a set and and writing sketches and whatever for the oscars and my finance job ended like January 28th, 2016. So it was just like, again, stars line, perfect sort of timing. Because I would have had to quit and then not collect unemployment uh, if um, had, had I quit. Mm -hmm. But luckily I was laid off from that job so then I could go to the Oscars, collect that check, oh, and then dude. afterwards collect unemployment. if paid. I paid. That's right? awesome. And so the Oscars were, most of February was consumed by oscars right mm -hmm. just uh watching movies and watching chris run his monologue and then once the oscars happened it was february 28th or something that year and after that i was like went back home uh i, I still remember the oscars were on a sunday and that night i was at like the governor's ball you know they have a big party after the oscars were super elite and it was i was like this is crazy there's aaron Rodgers. there's I don't know who else was around. I was just in such a blur. And then the next day I went to the comedy store, open mic and like ate a slice of pizza by myself. Yeah. And so once I flew back to New York, I'm like, all right, cool. Where, where are these writing jobs? I'm ready. Let, let's do this shit. And then nothing happened. And I'm like, Hmm. All right. Did I not capitalize this on this ride? Or is this not as big of a deal as I thought it would be? Um, Cause to me, it wasn't just the Oscars. It was, directly hired by chris rock to do that right and so i thought that was like i mean that should be a, a key to the city the key right. to the comedy city you know and that didn't play out that way but i did get i got i wrote for uh hassan's hassan minaj's um, white house correspondence dinner before the year before i did that but the year before that he wrote he had to give the address to the congressional correspondence dinner oh. and that was I, that's like the trial run for White House correspondence, mm -hmm. and so he hired me and a few other people to help him uh, write for that. And so that I'm not sure if that was a function of writing for Chris, but because I've known Hassan for 15, 20 years now, before I started comedy, I knew him. But really, yeah, uh, that's another uh, sidebar. Of that, but uh, so I did that for April. So that kind of held me over for that month. And then I was like, I was looking for like advertising jobs. Cause I thought it would lead. I thought it would make perfect sense. Right. I wrote for the Oscars, very pithy jokes, like quick. I've watched every fucking movie. I can write jokes. I thought, what's the natural sort of, uh, um, family job next to like writing jokes is writing copy. I thought, okay, I have this Oscars on my resume. I should be able to write for, you know, Wyden and Kennedy or whatever that didn't plan out. Like everyone's like, you need a portfolio and you need this and that. I'm like, uh, I here, I went to the, here's my Oscars ticket. Uh, <laughs> uh, and then that didn't play out. And then my manager got me a job at uh comedy KO, uh, comedy knockout, which was on true Damien? TV. Yeah. With Damien. Is that show still on? No. Uh, it lasted, I think three seasons, but I was yeah. there for one. 
over the summer and i was like okay i guess like i was contemplating going back into being in finance working as an assistant and just like making whatever so i could pay the bills and do comedy the way i was doing um and then once i got that comedy ko job that summer i also got passed at the cellar and that was i think a function of the visibility that being hired by chris um, because i was recommended by a, a comic who knew him and saw me on the street one day she's like you just work for chris i was like yeah she was like I'm gonna wreck you at the cellar. I was like, sick. It's amazing. <laughs> Every yeah. time I hear a story like that, it makes me want to fucking kill myself. Why? <laughs> because that's how I envision it happening for me, but nobody's coming up to me on the street. <laughs> Just give it some time. The bro. only people I see on the street are people who steal my fucking bike. <laughs> I, dude, I'll tell you. Yeah, I'm sorry, I saw that. You that see happened. that shit? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's, yeah. But I mean, that seems like it was your fault. Who parks the city? Totally. Bike? <laughs> you know who does? A person who believes in the world. Yeah, yeah. yeah. You fool! <laughs> I'll steal your wallet right now. It's right there. Got some cash in there. Doing okay. Just to teach you a lesson. <laughs> you know? I, I I do want to back up a few steps. Uh, sure. On on this story of your life because it's fascinating to me. You went to NYU. Yeah. Went to the Stern School of Business. Yeah, the undergrad school. Yeah. And you graduated with a degree. In, in business finance, yeah. and then went into finance yeah aziz ansari uh-huh. also nyu went to nyu stern yep marketing and graduated and then got into comedy he was doing comedy while he was at nyu from what i understand right. like because i remember seeing him i think i might have been a freshman and he, had, he might have just graduated because mm-hmm. we never i don't think we were on campus at the same time but he still lived in new york or whatever i just remember seeing him uh at Kmart like he I was going up the escalators he was going down them like yo that's Aziz but this was he was human giant famous human giant yep and that was one of my favorite sketch shows and uh so he was already doing comedy and when I think back at my time at NYU I'm like I should have just been doing fucking comedy the whole time Mm. guys if you're thinking about starting a podcast fill in the blanks here if I were in a concert right now and i said if you're thinking about starting a podcast i'd then turn the microphone to all of you sitting in the stadium and you would all yell anchor anchor and then you'd say go to anchor.fm to download the software where you could host your very own podcast see all the best analytics you could see it in a way that was really user-friendly and nice and not too technical and industry jargony it's a way that any person can look at it and be like "Ooh, that's pretty and also it's our podcast and there's no minimum listenership required to advertise and monetize so you can immediately have ads when you hit the ground running. It's really exciting, really spectacular. If you want to start your very own podcast, Anchor.fm, download it now. But yeah, so I graduated in 09, 08, was unemployed for like a year and change, uh, found comedy in August of 09, and then I was like, I have to move to New York to do this. Because luckily my parents lived in Jersey, so I could mm-hmm. live at home and commute while I made no money. But then at some point, it's like, I need to be in the city all the time because mm-hmm. I'm missing out on so much shit comedy-wise. Totally. I have a similar timeline. I, and I was in Boston for college. Not as much like the com, but there's this comedy scene there. For sure. And I look back and I'm like, why the fuck was I not? Why was I wasting all that time? I just did the same, same exact thing. Uh-huh. I like knew about Eddie Murphy and Chris Rock and I would mm-hmm. watch that. And I thought it was funny and I was like, oh, maybe I could. But like, I never thought it was a thing I could do. And I didn't know anybody else. Like, I didn't know any of the other... I didn't know who Bill Burr was. I didn't know right. shit, you know? It's a crazy thing. Yeah, fucking so stupid. <laughs> <laughs> you know? I think I, everything I've done has been dumb. <laughs> what the fuck was I doing? Well, you're, you're poised out. then to, to be on Oops! the podcast. Yeah. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Oops to all of college. <laughs> <laughs> 
Do you regret getting a college degree in in light of what you where you are now? No, I I don't think I would be where I'm at if I hadn't. Um, I, it's hard to say you I regret anything. I obviously you can backfill a lot of things and wish you did things differently, but I, I, up until August of 2009, I was on a path to be a doctor or a financier. Like that was what I thought I should be doing or would be doing, and it just didn't play out that way. Hmm. Uh, probably the biggest oops in that sense is like not dropping. Pre- I was also pre-med while I was at NYU, so oh. I transferred from the the school of the College of Arts and Sciences, the sort of general program, to the undergrad program my sophomore year. And I should have just dropped pre-med at that point. Um, but I didn't. That's that's probably a big oops. Like, fuck, why the fuck did I do this for... Fucking... it was so hard and time-consuming. Yeah, it consumed a lot of time. It definitely was detrimental to my GPA. I think I got a C-plus and Orgo 1. I was going to say, organic chemistry is always the one that yeah, kills me. Yeah, that killed me. And I, it was also, I was going through personal shit with my ex-girlfriend girlfriend at the time. So it was like, a lot was weighing on me. And I wasn't focused on school at in the very least and right. finance classes are supposed to be easy uh right. and but my orgo classes my orgo like dropped me poorly and it kind of affected everything i was doing and then once i once i dropped orgo one or orgo two i didn't take it my junior year i was like what the f- i just wasted all this time and money doing all this bullshit when i could have been focused and but had i not done that Maybe I would have gotten like a banking job and maybe I would have been a banker and maybe this would be my apartment, you know? There you go. <laughs> Dude, I, it, it's a great point. I mean, you know, I, I think failing our way towards uh, what, where we wanted to be, whether we intentionally did it or not, is yeah. a very important thing. So... Now you you wrote for SNL for one season? One season, season 43. That's pretty cool. How did that happen? It was a good time. Uh I mean, I've known Che for a very long time and That's Mike Che everybody. Yeah, Michael and Che. He uh he hired me effectively uh, uh to help write on Update mm-hmm. um, cuz before that I Drew Michael had had the job um and before that I think they'd I think it was their third season being co-anchors on Colin and, and Chase third yeah. season being co-anchors on, on update. And uh, I think they, they just were kind of find their finding their footing and yeah. uh, having known Che for at this point, 11 years, by that point, eight, seven or whatever. Um, he just thought I could help uh, aggrandize his voice. And and was it, were you in, at 30 Rock every day, the way that, you know, grinding out, the way that no, they Well, update do, schedule or? is different. Okay. Uh, the sketch writers have a wild schedule um, in that, you know, Monday they'll come in at like four, but Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, and Saturday are like wild days for them. So Monday's, the, Sunday, Monday is like their chiller days. What's wild? Like. Well, a lot of them, I think for sketch, it would, they would show up at like, from what I remember, it was it varied for a lot of them, uh, but on average like four p.m. But they would stay till like four or five a.m. and then go home, get some sleep if they were in the position to do so, and come back by noon for table read, where their table the sketches would be read, and then you know that would last all day. At night they would make the decisions for what sketches were going to make it. Thursday 
Friday was rewriting and the sketches being produced. So, you know, set being designed, uh, hair and makeup being designed, who else needs to be in the sketch, like blocking, directing, all that kind of stuff. And then Friday, Thursday through Saturday, up until showtime was that was all that was happening like mm-hmm. rewrites and it was it it's a, such a well world machine what's that like sleeping there sometimes? i'm sure i'm sure people right. slept there i so update schedule is more like all right well we'll come in at like 10 a.m on it was like 10 to 8 10 to 9 except on fridays fridays we would stay there forever because che and joe are also head writers so they would be so tied up with sketch stuff that once all the sketch stuff was done then they would have time to work on their jokes and like write update stuff That's so crazy. We, yeah it was nuts. That that position you say Drew Michael had it before you, mm-hmm. and then you had it. Is that a one year kind of like rotating? Oh gig? no, I think it just didn't work out for myself or Drew. Uh, Drew, for whatever he his reasons that didn't work out, and for me it didn't work out. Like I I I probably had like a five percent hit rate with jokes. Uh, so because like, I'm not a skilled, uh, non stand-up joke writer mm-hmm. when it comes to like the kind of jokes that you see on fallon and and even on obviously on update like the one-off jokes this story happened therefore what's the joke for that i'm not skilled at that that's a skill you got to develop and i don't have that skill it's not right. a skill i've developed and with uh with update you're either writing for che or jost who are very already kind of their own voices and very much defined by who they are mm-hmm. And so to fit into that was difficult. I definitely found it difficult to be because I'm a stand-up, so I'm writing jokes how I would write, how I would deliver things, right. and hoping that they will see what I wrote. Um, and that didn't play out the way it did. So mm-hmm. I was let go. Well, you don't like get like fired. You're just told you're not getting renewed. Mm-hmm. And yeah. I was told I wasn't getting renewed like two hours before I had to run my set for. Seth. <laughs> so, oh wow, like, that's crazy. I, I, met, I was sitting on my sofa. I get the call from my agent. Say, hey, you're not going to get renewed for SNL. I was like, all right, I can't even think about this because right. in two hours from now, I have to go run my set that I'm going to do for the Booker. Two day, three, four days later on Seth. Like I got the. It was probably I did Seth on July 16th or something. So it might have been July 12th or something that I got the call at like. 5 p.m. and at 7 p.m. the booker was going to come see me just to make sure things were tight and whatever mm-hmm. give any final notes and then after that I was like fuck I didn't get renewed this fucking I was in a funk for yeah. a while but I couldn't I couldn't process it yeah so as someone who has come in and out of these writing jobs mm-hmm. right how have you learned to deal with periods of not making salary mm-hmm versus to you know have these jobs i mean do you feel that you can sustain a good income Mm -hmm. even though it is obviously ups and downs i never feel comfortable if that's the question it's never i after snl is quite comfortable me and my girl were living large (laughs) you know like after parties i would be like buying dinner for like all my cousins shit like yeah we going out you know it was it was fun i thought i loved it i don't regret a minute of it (laughs) Um, I don't regret a minute of blowing all the money that I definitely blew on while I was at the show because I, I didn't see it ending. Um, and it was also the first time I had like real money that I felt good about. You know, while I was at working in finance, it was, it was decent money, but I wasn't like, right. like 
cool mm -hmm. right, right, but right. the snl money just felt cool yeah. <laughs> you know it's a different if it, it was a different vibe when you got that check and so once that ended i knew you would still get you would still get residuals from time to time so that that kept me afloat then i did uh comedy seller had their this week at the seller um so that kept me afloat i was also working at the seller a bit more um and random uh, gigs random like columbia happened six months after uh, uh snl but that was a decent check so like random things random stars would align for me to make it through right. the next two months or whatever right. um but i'd also put away at snl a good amount of money That's just smart. like enough to be like okay if right. anything happens I'm i can cover rent for myself and my fiance for a year at least right, right. like i needed to i needed to do that yeah uh, and once i hit that i was like what the fuck was i doing dude right. did i need 800 worth of jeans like all the time you know like i would just buy shit that you just think okay this is cool i'm gonna get that and yeah. like 300 dinners random you know just uber yeah. rides but not uber xl uber black like just, what the fuck am i doing <laughs> you, know, just, you know you just live like you're yeah, the yeah. king of the world uh -huh. uh, whatever fuck it but i i never for the year that i wasn't working it, I was definitely anxious. There was definitely anxiety of just like, all right, what's like, I feel okay, but how long is this okay going to last? Yeah. You know? And then, and then while I was up for writing jobs that didn't pan out, I was like, oh, fuck, what the fuck? I didn't get that job. Um, it, so there's definitely like levels of anxiety. And then uh, I ended up at, at full frontal with Samantha B as a field producer. And that started in, in June of Congrats, man. thank you yeah that's where you are now yeah yeah, yeah. oh cool um I ended there ended up there in June of last year of 2019 and I've been there since and it's been great but I'm also I'm not sure I'm always thinking every now I'm of the mind everything's gonna end mm -hmm. right you know there's no more there's no more like three hundred four hundred dollar five hundred dollar bottle nights of you know like I don't yeah. do that anymore I didn't do that at SNL more like three hundred dollar dinners or whatever but right. I don't do that anymore. It's more just like being prudent. What uh, what does field producer mean? Are you a co correspondent? No. Or? So the third act is the field piece where you you know go interview somebody or explore a story outside of the studio. Mm -hmm. So I'll pitch ideas about that's like the piece I that aired yesterday um, is about healthcare in America, and it's been a piece that derived from my stand up of how fucked up American healthcare is. And I wanted to relay a story that I had, which is true. I had an asthma attack like January of 2017, I guess, because I, I smoked one of those vape pens um, and like I smoked it to the end, basically. And so the end is where I think, and correct me if I'm wrong, but from what I understand is there's some kind of metal thing that like heats up to heat the oil up and it has some residue on it that I, when you smoke, it comes out, it looks like you're smoking weed, but it's actually you're smoking a tin or whatever. Mm. And I smoked it to the end. I was like, well, it keeps hitting, so why the fuck would I not keep smoking it? And then and then one point, I remember like walking up the upstairs, and I was like, I can't breathe normally. Like, this is not good. And then that night, uh, I, I was like afraid to go to sleep because I didn't know if I would be able to breathe. And me and my girls, I was like, right, let's just go to the hospital. And I was there for maybe an hour and a half, and I got the bill two weeks later, and it was like six G's. Jesus. And I was, like, I was there for 
two hours. It wasn't like a a flop, popping night for them. They didn't like go out of the way to see me, you know. And I got the Jeez. bill. It was six G's, and I called them because having had a year before that, I had hernia surgery, and I didn't have insurance at that point. And my mom just asked the doctor, "Hey, like he doesn't have insurance. Can we just pay this amount of money, and you'll forgive the rest of the charges?" And the doctor was like, "Yeah, sure." You know, that's great. So in that was in my brain when I called the hospital. I was like, look, I don't have $6,000. I'm not, I can't afford to pay this. And they literally said, how much do you have? And I said, nothing. And they were like, all right, you don't have to pay anything. Mind you, I had enough money to pay some portion of the charge, but they I'm not. You don't have to pay anything. They don't have to pay anything. Just write us this a letter. This is how the emergency room works. And, but that's the thing. Like if something's, and that the, in my head, what inspired the piece, like if something is, something so they say it costs $6,000, but they let go for zero. It was never worth six. Right. Right. That's just simple. No one's going to do that. But right. in a way, maybe you're financing all the people who can't pay for anything. Right. right? And, I, and I also know that hospitals have a certain amount of money that they effectively just write off for right. people, poor people who right. can't afford to pay anything. Um, and sure, I am fine. And sure, there are rich people who pay those bills and insurance companies that pay those bills so that poor people who don't have money can't afford to go to those places. But at the same time, it should be sort of normalized where everyone should be paying a certain amount. Like it, there's no reason anything should cost $6,000 when you're in there for 20 minutes. Right. right. And so that, the piece that I put out was like I wanted to pitch like how can we talk about healthcare this way and ended up pitching that healthcare is basically like Price is Right. And so oh. we designed the sort oh, of Price great. is Right game set. We interviewed that's a great. doctor about healthcare. And it, it took two months to put together. Um, from all the research I did to airing it finally, but that's that's what we do at the show. That's what my role is. That's really cool. It's, it's cool. Out, man. I want to see that. Yeah, yeah. Can we find that on YouTube. It's on my Instagram right now. Okay, awesome. Yeah, oh, please. Yeah. Very cool. Yeah, yeah. Very cool, bro. And you're featured in the piece, or no? I'm not featured in the piece. But so I, it's all behind the scenes. Yeah, Sam together. is in the piece, um, and we interviewed this doctor by the name of Doctor Juar, who is a physician out in in Long Island, but he writes about healthcare pricing and doctors and what have you. And, it was it was very cool to do. Met real patients who have gone through like fucking wild stories. I thought my shit was wild, and met some lady who got charged a hundred one thousand dollars for a surgery. The insurance paid like sixty five, but the doctor wanted an additional thirty five and went after her for it. Just like wild shit like that, yeah, you know. That's fucking crazy. It's the most fucked up system really in the world. We spent, I've done, I get to, we spent the most money too. $3.6 right? trillion dollars last year in 2018 on healthcare. That's how average 11 grand per person in America gets spent on healthcare. And the, the, the cleanest way I can explain as to why healthcare is so fucked up in America is because hospital groups, doctors, et cetera, like providers and insurers are all working to make sure they mo make the most money. So right. the way pricing works is doctors, insurance groups will will negotiate on a price for everything, right? Mm. And whatever neither agrees to pay, they just pass on to the consumer. Mm. So we get the higher premiums, we get the deductibles that are higher because these two pricks couldn't agree on what they want to fuck us with. Right. And that that's that's all yeah. it is. That well, everyone's just passing the buck to us and right. we just keep getting fucked and fucked and fucked. The government needs to step in and say, these are the prices that you can charge. There's right. some leeway depending on how good your service is or whatever. Right. But you can't charge $8 for a Band-Aid. Right. You know, like, there's a story on Vox, which really pissed me off. It's a lady went into the emergency room, 
spent 10 minutes because she thought she needed stitches for a cut, ended up just needing a Band-Aid. The, band, the Band-Aid, when she got her bill, was $7. <laughs> it's $7 for a finger Band-Aid. Yeah. It's like, I cannot, you can't pay in Band-Aids. Because, you know, like, I just go in, like, I have all the money in the world. These are $7 <laughs> Band-Aids, right? Like Movie theater prices. Dude. Yeah, it's fucked. Yeah. <laughs> it's fine. so fucked. But anyway, that so that's the piece that I just put on. That's but that's cool, that's man. what I do at the show. I'm reading the uh, this book book called Dreamland about the opioid epidemic. Oh shit! And how you know the pharmaceutical companies really toned down the addictive tendencies of the painkillers through the 1970s and 1980s, mm-hmm. and started treating because everyone knew they were addictive from when they came out in 1920s they were all derived from morphine right and everyone knew morphine was incredibly addictive but uh then people started coming out with these new drugs the oxycodones the percocets all that and everyone was abusing them and people were saying well this is crazy they're very addictive you can't put these out but that what happened was they had been addictive and they were only used really to treat terminal patients for a long time the idea was that someone has cancer, they're dying of cancer. Let's we might as well make it as peaceful for them as possible. It doesn't really matter if they get addicted because right. they're going they're to die. die. Right. And it was seen as a humane drug for a long time. Hmm. And then a couple studies came out that said, Well, we've released these time release pills of oxycodone, right? That instead of it being that intense high for a bit that then washes away and leaves the user craving it again, it now releases it in your blood system over the entire day. Less high highs, less low lows. This is a safe alternative. And now we're gonna start using it to treat chronic pain. Uh, And everyone started coming in with back issues, joint issues, and they were asking it, and people were fucking prescribing oxycodone like it was Advil. And this led to, of course, the heroin boom of the 1990s because Street, dude, I don't mean to go on too long, but this this is insane, okay? Um, old people, like senior citizens, were getting prescribed oxycodone and selling it to teenagers for a huge markup and paying their retirements. Can't knock the hustle, dude. How insane is that? Don't hate Hustle's the player. <laughs> <laughs> and what happened it's was... amazing. Uh, there, there, were these, there were these groups in Mexico that were coming from these tiny, tiny villages um, that would come in to cities like Denver, Portland, Oregon, yeah. et cetera. And they would develop the beeper system. The driver would go out, meet the, the person and sell them the heroin, the black tar that they were bringing up from Mexico. And uh, there was no violence. None of these guys had guns. And they, they ran a, like a, a safe business. Yeah. And it, it spread to all the cities. All the cities and everyone was getting hooked on heroin because they couldn't afford oxycodone. Oxycodone, really? Yeah, yeah. That, that's why. That's what happened. That's so what how happened. was that presented as an alternative? They're like, hey, if you don't, you can't find this. Like you'll love because this. Because the opiate high, opiate, right? Right. Coming from opium, uh, right. the poppies, right? right? It was from the right. bulb of the poppy. From, right? And heroin, it gives right. you the same high. Yep. Effectively, it's, it's a like version of it. Twenty times cheaper. Yeah. Right. You don't have to go to the doctor to get it. But it had been around. Like I remember all the like jazz musicians used to use it and stuff. Like at what yes, point? Yes, it, it, heroin had been around, but and I this this is the crazy part. It wasn't used by white middle class kids. No, it was right. a drug that was it, used in New York City. That's why they care about it people. now. 
And then that's why I got those fucking Narcan signs. Started infiltrating high schoolers in middle class neighborhoods, in in like working neighborhoods. All this shit. And that was the nineties. And that's when the kids started go- going from oxycodone over to heroin, gotcha. and people were dying all the time. Right. And that's why now it's becoming so talked about. That's the that's only crazy. reason. It, that's the only reason Trump has made it a national crisis is because middle class white kids are dying from it. Yeah. And it's like because people have been dying from heroin forever and crack and all that but now it's like i have a bit about it but about the heroin epidemic but it's like they have signs about yo fuck narcan use narcan save a life they Mm -hmm. want like us to like if we see someone passed out put a heroin antidote in someone's nose right alexone too yeah and alexone yeah it's but dude get this these mexican uh drug dealers who were seen as being like a cleaner drug dealer than the Bloods and the Crips who were selling crack and killing each other over drug territory. Right. Um, these guys figured out to go to methadone clinics. Yeah. Which is where all the addicts who were trying to kick the habit were going because methadone is an opiate, but it is a, it, it, it's like, it's sort of what the time release oxycodone was meant to do, mm, which is that right. it keeps you a little bit more level and you only need one dose in the beginning of the day. To get you through the day. That's why everybody's out there at 7 a.m. Yeah, and they would come to these fucking methadone clinics in all these beat up towns and start selling people heroin again. I mean, it was, dude. It's, dude, that's dark. Doctors don't, our doctors don't get enough blame, I don't think. Like, I, I, right. Doctors were incentivized by the big pharmaceutical companies to right. sell, to really peddle oxycodone. And yeah. a lot of them, they were looking at medical research at the time that had come out supporting the idea that these opiates were not as addictive as they had been told they were in the 1970s. Yeah, but at some point it turned into just pill mills. Everyone's like, okay, well, Correct. we can just prescribe this and we'll get X amount of money from the pharmaceutical company or the insurer and we don't care. These right. people just keep coming back in, keep coming back in. They technically still have pain, so we'll just give them medicine. I right. just remember, I there's so much there. I, yeah. I yeah. like I'm furious about. But they yeah. used to they used to have these things called CMEs, which are called uh, continuing medical education, which is where doctors and nurses and whatnot would be sent to very glitzy spas and golf resorts for a weekend conference where they were meant to hear from specialists in the drug industry who would basically talk and give speeches that led to the conclusion as always that the drug they were selling was not addictive meanwhile the doctors would be playing golf be getting you know handed these big bags of pro v1 titleist right, golf right, balls right, right. branded with you know oxycodone your friend or whatever right. and they'd come away from this feeling all fucking pampered and of course they were going to be selling writing Absolutely. scripts for oxycodone it, yeah it was crazy dude yeah what a what a time yeah but yeah healthcare fucked <laughs> you know like maybe maybe I, I I'm curious to know if I could do something about opioids on the show, but it is a wild thing to think about. Dude, yeah, yeah. It seems like the logical yeah. next step. Yeah, what time we got? Okay, yeah. we probably need to wrap up. Yeah, yeah. yeah. We didn't even get to the Columbia thing, but obviously everyone knows was, you from that. What was the question? Well, the question I had was, um, you know, did did you feel that at let's say like an Ivy League school, mm-hmm. there's a higher tendency for the students to be that woke? versus places that are i don't know state schools or bigger schools uh short answer probably uh long answer i'm not fully sure i mean i after columbia the incident at columbia like students at harvard invited me to come up and like talk about and do whatever i wanted like you know have a have a free speech set Mm -hmm. um and so there's i'm sure there's whatever 
was happening at in those Columbia students' mind, there's the opposite exists at another Ivy League school or even at Columbia for sure. Um, have done state schools like Ohio State and Alaska and had a blast. No problem. You know, I was gonna say that. Yeah, yeah. I played UConn. Uh, you know, last year, like all these places, there's no issue. But you get it's a very different group of. It depends. It's it's a different group of people. I think that uh, uh, go to those schools, obviously, mm-hmm. uh, and I think. When you have a, even mine was a very, even within the subset of Columbia students, it was a very different subset, right? It was an Asian American alliance. And even that, a majority of those students, I still feel like were on my side. I know a lot of people hit me up from that school. Three kids from Columbia even came down to my show after that show. Like, hey, man, we're sorry. We're not all like them. Like, That's I know. That's fucking I, embarrassing. Right. I'm like, I don't think you're all like that at right. all. Um, but, and I, don't think in most Ivy League schools are like that. I would hope not because these are the forefront of our education, right? But my experience has been at state schools, people are a lot cooler and chiller. And now when I, if I do do a a college gig, I will talk about Columbia almost immediately just to address it. And I will tell the joke that I told that got me kicked off. And then then the air is clear. Mm -hmm. This is who you're getting from. Right. This is who you hired. And if you don't like it, it doesn't, really matter you right. just have to suffer through it but I'm, I'm not out here spewing hate speech or anything you know certainly not so and you went on rogan oh yeah let's talk great. about Shout that. Out Joe rogan you've oh, you've yeah. had would you say that that whole incident in the end actually benefited you oh yeah for sure it was definitely a net positive i didn't think it would be anything but net positive it was annoying in the moment for the two or three weeks after and it is it, it's not annoying, but it's like a, a, a thing. I don't know what the exact word for it is. Of That's not necessarily what I wanted to be known for. And mm-hmm. I don't think that and you're is. You're not. Right. No. Uh, but it is. It, it was in the moment, like, stressful. Like, well, people, I'm getting Google alerts. I had to delete my Google alerts and, like, text and all this kind of shit. And uh, that was, like, a taste of fame of, like, the, the infamy or whatever yeah, notoriety. Yeah. yeah it's like oh this show i hate this show i don't want to fucking be in people's minds like this all the mm. time it seems fucking annoying yeah you were being used almost as like uh you know the prized cow at the middle of a tug of war oh between yeah between the sure. two sides <laughs> sure i was like no, i don't care about either of y'all yeah you know? exactly <laughs> you know, it's like everyone's everyone wanted to harp on free speech and being canceled and like the, and i'm not sure if i said this to joe uh, or, but I definitely said it on stage. It was like, you know, freedom of speech is not under attack when a comedian gets kicked off stage. It's like when Jamal Khashoggi gets murdered right. and no one says anything. Right, right. That's when freedom of speech is under attack. Absolutely. That's being canceled. I, I got annoyed for That's two being weeks. Canceled. Literally, <laughs> I, I got annoyed for two weeks. Yeah, right. <laughs> I'm, I'm wearing brown privilege sweatshirt. In front of two very white dudes. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> I'm, I'm living yeah. life, man. Yeah. You know? It's, yeah. <laughs> what are you talking about? Absolutely fantastic. Well, uh, thank very you cool. so much for joining us today, Nimesh. Where can we find you on uh, social media? Where I'm at Finding you? Nimesh. Uh, that's that's my handle at Patel2020 is where my album is. Patel2020.com. They'll link you to my Spotify album. Uh, yeah, that's it, man. Just out here living. Hell yeah. G, cool, anything man. coming up? Uh, yeah, February 17th, DC Improv. 18th at UConn. Oh, wow, I just love it. Brought that up. That should be cool. Are you doing, uh, what are you doing at Improv? Lounge uh, or the main room? Or I don't know. Oh, I think I think main room. That's gonna be fucking fun, man. I've never done it. Oh, it's a blast. Oh, yeah. December 
December 12th, I'm at Fat Black Pussy. Uh, December 12th, February 12th, I'm at Fat Black Pussycat, 10.30 p.m., doing an hour or a marathon show. I haven't decided what it's going to be yet. Oh, yeah. But nice. I'm raising money for uh, Doctors Without Borders, which is oh, my cool. favorite charity. Amazing. I love that charity. Yeah, yeah. What about you, Francis? Uh, very cool. I'm at uh, Helium Philly, March 5th to the 7th. Nice. You can get tickets for that. Uh, FrancisEllis.com. Um, otherwise, I'll be at Skankfest South and Moon Tower. And uh, yeah, you guys can check all my shit out at Francis C.C. Ellis.